I like rich data. I like more. I just want to find my path through it. I like experiences that are terribly complex. I just want to find the path through them and clarity. I did a series of adventures in my life, and they were all adventures that helped me feel that I could survive and I could try anything. And the worst that could happen was failure, and that's not so bad. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallero, Esri Manager of National Government Emerging Business, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Richard Saul Worman, designer, architect, and founder of the TED Conference, touch on a philosophy of work and life that forged a career that has greatly influenced business, culture, and communication. In this special episode, Worman spends a few minutes discussing the vital nature of topics like clarity, failure, fear, and the relationship of understanding to meaningful decision-making. Here, Esri Marketing Programs lead, Ed Loker, as he helps us get a glimpse of the mind of an innovator who forever changed the conversations we have about technology and transformation. So you've talked a lot about the idea that understanding precedes action. Can you explain what you mean by that and why it matters today? Well, married today, but it married yesterday. It's, it's a constant. Understanding always preceded meaningful action. It's basically part of the human condition. That in order to take action, responsible action, useful, meaningful action, which we sort of strive for, I strive for, before I do anything. And if you have greater understanding, perhaps it influences your actions better and makes them more meaningful too. So it's a self-evident, obvious statement that sometimes people don't take the trouble of using as a filter to what they do. You only understand something relative to something else. But it's obvious. Many of the most obvious things are not done. How is technology supporting or making this more difficult? Does does access to this information through the various technological means that we have now, is that making it simpler to understand or is it more difficult because the signal to noise ratio may be much lower than it used to be? Yes, we have much more access to data. We are not at the same rate catching up to the speed in which we can, you know, belch out all the data. It'll take a while and it'll take people who call themselves information designers, information architects, cartographers who care about not the look of the map, but how you can understand it, about how much you put on a map, how we talk to each other, the clarity of our conversation, telling the truth, making that truth understandable. It's a catch-up experience. It's not always a one-to-one thing. Do you think we will catch up? Maybe not, but maybe we'll get closer, or maybe we'll be aware of where we are. But I'm not measuring that. I'm measuring my own ability for clarity, of making the complex clear, of having a more interesting life myself. And I hope others do too. So professionally, I'm in marketing. And my number one overarching job is to make the complex simple. Not simple, clear. Simple is a dumbing down experience. Simple, you can take a, 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 a form that you fill out and strip away half the words in there. And maybe it's simple, but it I don't think, I think maybe the information is good if it was put in an understandable form. I'm not trying to dumb down anybody's experience by cleaning up their act or by simplification. And I think it is dumbing down of of understanding. I like rich data. I like more. I just want to find my path through it. I like experiences that are terribly complex. I just want to find the path through them and clarity. And there really is a different attitude towards that. I make everything I do as dense and as 
deep as possible. I try to take a deep dive, not a simple dive, a deep dive through everything, but I try to have clarity in the path, in the journey. Where is that intersection then, that clarity between business technology, entertainment, and design? So those seem to be some key elements of your they focus They were in my life at one time. My, everything that's yesterday is gone for me. I'm interested in the next idea. I do what interests me to do, but the connective tissue is my curiosity, my interest, and me being able to, at the end of it, go from ignorance to understanding. The term information architect. Yeah. How has that evolved over time? There seems to be some change in the way of pe that people are approaching the term. Yes, I think so. I first used it, and it probably was used before I first used it. It's, I didn't copyright it, but I first used it and then pushed it a bit and gave it uh, visibility. So sometimes somebody who gives something visibility gets tagged with being its creator. But I was asked to be the chairman of the annual meeting of the American Institute of Architects. And uh, so I decided to call the conference the Architecture of Information. And I proceeded to learn then in uh, 76, as I had done earlier in Aspen, when I ran the International Design Conference in 72, and it was called The Invisible City. The, the underlying theme of these things was how to understand complex data, how to understand the city, what a city was, because the city is the most complex invention we have, and it's the kind of mother load of mapping. So the invisible city was about if you make the city not invisible, it becomes a schoolhouse for everybody because everything's in the city you could learn from. The architecture of information was that there was, was an architectural meeting. There is an architecture, a systemic structure to information to reveal itself. And that's what I mean by the architecture of information. In our whole environment, in our architecture, in our books, in our conversation, the, the sense of conversation, of how beautiful it is and how it's one of the greatest things that human beings do is this back and forth of conversation to take us places we have never been like Watson and Crick did and like Gilbert and Sullivan did. Intellectual jazz. That interests me. That's why we're here. What is the most interesting conversation you've ever had? What is the most interesting conversation? I suspect a whole series of conversations I had with my mentor, Lou Kahn, a kind of venerated person in the, uh, the architect's architect. That was the series of almost Zen-like conversations. Some conversations I had with a, a professor of Oriental Studies at the University of Pennsylvania by the name of Skylar Van Rensselaer Kamen about the Eastern world, Tibet and uh, Japan and strange things like inside painted snuff bottles and arcane small things in which I could see that in anything was everything. And it gave me uh, a great delight to understand the structure of finding my way through understanding. So what was the common thread among those really interesting conversations that you had? I'm assuming- I can answer that right away. The people are always smarter than I am. I, I relish my ignorance. Because I'm ignorant, uh, I have an unlimited repertoire. If you're a specialist or really bright in something, you close in your repertoire to only talk about that one thing or only do things in that one area. I'm shallow but broad. And so I see the patterns between things that interest me. And I see people smarter than I am. So I try to surround myself with everybody who exceeds me. As you were growing up and progressing through your career, what, what were those seminal moments that you had that fundamentally changed the way either you viewed yourself within our ecosystem or? There were seminal moments where I took adventures. I begged my way across the United States. I uh, built the largest steel barge under Lucan. 
but I built the largest steel barge ever when I was 23 and, and went up the Thames in England. I surveyed one third of Tikal, Guatemala in its first season in the jungle and learned plane table surveying. And I did a series of adventures in my life and they were all adventures that helped me feel that I could survive and I could try anything. And the worst that could happen was failure and that's not so bad. And I still do. So I've had a series of moments of hailing, failing, and how, still sailing. How many more do you think you have in you? Well, I'm 82. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm on my last chapter. I don't know if you ever read My Gister Ludi, The Bead Game by Hetman Hesse, the book he got the Nobel Prize for writing. And that's about a mystical game. The whole book is about the game and you never find out the rules of the game or what they're doing. That's what I want to solve, the puzzle of my life to solve the next thing, the next thing that really interests me, that fascinates me. What's the most challenging thing to get people to accept the bluntness or the truth? Do you, what tools do you use that uh, help people understand? I don't think I'm accepted. Uh, uh, at, I'm 82, so it's a long time ago, but at 45, I was destitute. I had a little architectural practice that closed. I, I didn't have any money. I had a couple kids. I, 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 I had nothing. I had to start again. I have no skill sets. I can't type. 92 books and you can't type? I can't type. Every, all, all, all my books are dictated and transcribed. No, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm, I'm a helpless, helpless human being. Uh, I have some ideas that are thoughtful. I know how to give good instructions. I wrote a whole book on instructions. Follow the Elbridge Road is a book about the science of instructions. And I think about what is the way to give instructions uh, of how you can then expand your inabilities to abilities your lack of knowledge into doing. So I've, I've read that you said about the WWW conference that that's when you finally learned how to run a conference. That's correct. Yes. Which and may come is, as a revelation considering Ted. Well, Ted got incrementally better most every year and it was pretty good. And then I did a conference called EG and that was slightly better than any Ted I did, but it was good enough. I didn't want to do it again. If I do something that's really good, I don't do it again. And so, EG was pretty good, uh, but not where I wanted to be. And then I finally did the WWW conference, and it was the best that I could do. So life is about hailing, failing. It's about equilibrium and failure, losing your balance, having your balance. So I suspect every other thing I do fails. And everything I do fails because I don't do it well enough. It Mel Brooks in his movie, not his movie, his 5,000-year-old man or 2,000-year-old 2000, man, which is such a preposterous thing. He was asked, what did they use for transportation? And he said, huh, we didn't have buses, we didn't do this. What we used for transportation 2,000 years ago was fear. <laughs> so I learned how to survey out of fear and humiliation. And a lot of my life is fear and humiliation. Fear is a great motivator. I'm worried always. I'm terrified all the time. I don't think you can do creative work unless you're terrified all the time. I am terrified all the time at whether what I'm thinking about is good enough, whether what I'm saying is, has clarity about it, whether, whether I'm old and I'm going to say, what did you say? Are you always able to keep moving forward even though you're terrified? Have you ever had moments when you've actually been stopped? I've had two jobs in my whole life that I wasn't fired from. I was fired as dean of a school. I was fired from everything I've done. The two people didn't fire me, Charles Eames, the designer, Charlie, and Lou Kahn didn't fire me. The, both of them didn't fire me. Everything else, I've been fired everywhere. Late in his life, you know that Ted Williams did not like to be interviewed. They were being interviewed and he was answering, uh-huh, yes, no, laconic, which comes from Lacedonia. That's another whole story, that word. But they were asking him, well, 
is it true that you have your eyes are better in 2020? He said, yep. You actually see the strike zone? He said, yep. He said, uh, well, you hit 406 or whatever it was the year before, that's the highest modern baseball. Could you get a higher batting average if you swung at the balls that were slightly out of the strike zone? Would you get more hits and maybe have a higher batting average? He said, yep. Well, why don't you? You have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. I try to draw the line somewhere. Draw the line somewhere. Well, I know you don't like to be thanked, but I will say that I've really enjoyed the conversation here. And I am grateful that you have chosen to spend some time with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Richard Saul Werman for underscoring that understanding always precedes meaningful action, especially at a time when we are daily confronted with the task of converting data into insight and to translating fast-changing new technologies into advantage. To learn more about Esri's point of view on how to make sense of key technology trends like digital transformation and the Internet of Things, visit esri.com forward slash wear and esri.com forward slash IOT.